Thank you all for this morning. Good morning, everybody. So wonderful to see you all. Thank you for being with us. We're going to be continuing our series, if you're new with us, on who I am, a series on God's character and nature. Not on who I am, but who God is, right? Who we should be in response to who God is and how we should be living our lives. I'm going to move this a little bit back. Is that okay? <laughs> um, but we want to be a church of conviction, right? We want to be people who, in examining the character and nature of God, that we live our lives differently. And that's something that I've been enjoying about studying this as I've been preparing sermons, is it's been so convicting for my own heart. So this morning, we're going to keep doing it. We're going to keep diving into who our indescribable God is. This summer, Abby and I, we went to Greece and Italy for two weeks, and it was wonderful. One of the highlights of my life in terms of going overseas and seeing awesome places, eating good food. And one of the biggest highlights of the trip for me was I actually saw Giannis Antetokounmpo. If you don't know who that is, he's like the current best player in the NBA. And he's affectionately known as the Greek freak because he's from Greece. And I saw him in the most Greek place on earth in the Parthenon. Uh, so it was just one of those moments like, what are the odds that I see Giannis at the Parthenon? Like that, that trip was awesome. Uh, and that, that made it for me even more. But something that I noticed as we kept walking around was tourists continually doing things that they were not supposed to do. I don't know if you've been overseas and have experienced something similar, but in many places, for example, people weren't supposed to take pictures. And that could be because it was holy significance or they didn't want flash to ruin ancient objects or it hadn't been documented yet, so... There were some licensing problems, but it was almost as if, if somebody had a massive sign with a, a camera with a universal don't sign on it, people took it as a challenge to have the most amazing photo shoot imaginable. So they would go to these different places and take selfies and you just hear clicks all over the place. And it's just like, guys, come on. So one example, uh, so this is the cave of John the Revelator, right, where he supposedly... Um, this is debated historically, but most people think this is the cave that, where he received the revelation at, in the island of Patmos. So I took a picture of the outside because, as a good rule follower, you don't take pictures on the inside of it because you weren't supposed to. But as we went in there, I mean, I feel bad for the guy. Like, there was not only a sign that said don't take pictures, but there was a guy saying no cameras, no photos, no cameras, just totally defeated, and people were just like everywhere. Another way that we've seen tourists at their finest was whenever we were visiting the Sistine Chapel. So whenever you go into the Sistine Chapel, you're supposed to be absolutely silent. There's not supposed to be any talking whatsoever. And <laughs> when we go in there, there's a guard who is over by this microphone who constantly keeps having to say this because people keep talking, and it's not even like quietly, like it keeps getting louder and louder, but he goes over this microphone with the voice of utter defeat saying, silence, please, silence, no talking, and he goes to Italian, silencio, and he just kept going and going, and I was just like, I feel so bad for this guy. <laughs> I mean, people are just being so disrespectful, but it's things like this that remind us that people are really not trustworthy or reliable, at least not all the time. As time goes on, humans are also increasingly becoming more flaky and non-committal. 
the average length of marriages is getting shorter and shorter. People are feeling more okay with backing out of commitments that they made because something more desirable pops up. The average amount of time that people spend working for one company is getting shorter and shorter. And that one I'm not necessarily saying is bad, it's just an observation. But we have problems committing with and sticking to people and other situations in our life whenever things may go a little bit bad. Lately we've been in Exodus 34, verse 6 and 7, examining who God says he is to Moses. And this is so important because this is the chunk of scripture that people keep coming back to in the Bible, say, hey, remember, this is what God is like. This is who God says he is. And we'll read it again. And hopefully by this point, it's starting to get grilled into you. That's one of my dreams. Uh, And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Again, that that takes a turn there at the end, and we're going to talk about that the next time I preach. Um, But thus far, we've talked about God's compassion, God's grace, and God being slow to anger, God's patience. And today we're going to be looking at God abounding in love and faithfulness. So these two words in Hebrew are chesed and emet, and for the sake of just not having to... I'm just going to call it hesed from this point on, just to let you know. Uh, But like compassionate and gracious, God's love and faithfulness are coupled together hundreds of times in Scripture. I'm not exaggerating that. Hundreds of times. It's all over the book of Psalms. And part of the reason I think it's so prevalent in the book of Psalms is because God's love and faithfulness just sparks worship. I mean, if you look at all the songs that have been pumped out recently, right, it's hard to find songs that don't include something about God's love or God's faithfulness, because it's, it's that important. Also, something that's interesting, whenever Jesus speaks of grace and truth in his ministry, which are huge parts of his ministry, a lot of people believe he's actually quoting Hesed and Emmet from Exodus 34. So that makes this passage even more important if it's a huge staple of Jesus' ministry. Hesed is often translated as love, but in our current mindset, love has kind of become a little bit watered down. We might, we might think of love being like a nice, warm, fuzzy feeling you have towards somebody, but that's a little bit more in line with God's compassion that we talked about earlier. Hesed is more than that. It's best understood as steadfast love or denoting more of a loyal kind of love. Hesed has this sort of rugged commitment that's baked into it. It kind of has this 1 Corinthians 13 kind of love, a love that doesn't fail, a love that endures. In scripture, this word is everywhere. It's all over the place. Sometimes I just think it's an umbrella term for God's goodness, just all captured into one attribute. But this word is repeated twice in these verses, verse 6 and verse 7. And remember, I talked about whenever we were talking about God's name a few weeks ago, whenever something is repeated in ancient cultures, it's a huge emphasis. So God's hesed is very important. The other word, emet, This word can mean several different things, but it's normally translated as truth. But it also gives off this idea of reliability, or stability, or faithfulness. Fun fact, scholars actually think this word has linguistic ties to the Greek word amen, which is what we'd say amen, and whenever we say amen, we're saying like something rings really true to us in our bones, right? It kind of comes from emet. 
But what, what this is saying, what God's faithfulness, what this word's trying to talk about in reference to God is that if you're counting on God, God's not going to let you down. But when you put these two words together, what we get is a God of committal love. We get a God of covenant. And covenant is so crucial to understand. Because a lot of people argue that the whole Bible, the point of it, is a covenant, is God fulfilling his covenant. It's so crucial. A covenant is kind of like a promise today in that it's relational, it's between two people, but it's more than just a promise. There's also some legal binding nature to it. So an example of that might be if they have a contract, if you fulfill that contract, track, there would be blessings that come with it, but if you break that contract, there might be curses that come from it. And I think it's hard to find the best modern day equivalent for it, but I think the best one that exists currently is that of marriage. This is between two people making promises to one another or making vows to one another until death do them part. And there's a level of legality to it. If you fulfill that covenant, it's something that is truly beautiful and special. If that covenant were to break, there can be some really hurtful consequences that come from it. But whenever we look at biblical covenants, the thing that people tend to latch onto is Genesis 12. And that's one of the best places to start by talk, talking about covenants. A lot of people believe that all of the Bible really hinges on Genesis 12. And many argue that the gospel, it doesn't really start in Matthew. It starts here in Genesis 12. It's pivotal. And this is after all the ups and downs. I guess I shouldn't say ups and downs. It's really just downs of the first 11 chapters of Genesis, right? Humans and the fall and the flood and then the Tower of Babel. So God is frustrated with his prized creation but in chapter 12, he makes a commitment to this one man and his descendants. And we're going to read about it. It says, Yahweh said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So here... Yahweh is setting up this covenant with Abram, later to be renamed Abraham. So that's who we're talking about here. But note the, all the I will language that's here. This is, a, this is a language of promise, right? God is going to bless Abraham by making him into a great nation, by blessing his name. And through his descendants, the whole world will be blessed. And in chapter 15, we kind of see God double down on this whenever he says, you will have descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. And though examining what God promised him is really important, it's also important to notice what God doesn't promise Abraham. God doesn't promise Abraham that he's going to have a carefree life. God doesn't promise Abraham that you're going to have wealth unimagined, as what a lot of prosperity gospel preachers might try to suggest. That's not what he's talking about. He's saying your name will be great and the world is going to be blessed through you. Then in chapter 15, we see a story, and this is one that's super easy to miss. I have read over this story so many times, but it is fascinating. Um, so what happens here is Yahweh is telling Abraham that he's going to receive land from the Chaldeans. But he asks a question that's very human, a question that we might ask whenever we're questioning where God's faithfulness is in all of this, right? So how can I know for sure? How can I know for sure you're going to pull through on this? 
And what happens next is really bizarre. And I'm going to give a little warning for those of you who really love animals. Uh, you might just want to put ear mouths on for a little bit. But it's really cool, so maybe don't. Um, so Genesis 15, verse 9 and 10. It says, So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. So if you like birds, you're good. But you might be wondering, what on earth does this have to do with anything? Great question. Well, as a lot of Christian scholars suggest in uh, John Mark Comer's book, he also has a really good section on this, um, God Has a Name. That book's awesome. But what's happening is this ancient Near Eastern practice that's referred to a lot of times as cutting the covenant. It's a nice little name. But what happens is, as you see with Abraham, they would cut these animals in half and then lay them kind of to create this walkway, this pathway, a bloodied pathway in between these, these dead animals. And whoever would be a part of this covenant, however many parties, they would walk through this pathway together as a symbol of saying, if I don't fulfill my side of the covenant, this is what's going to happen to me. But there is a really interesting turn of events at the end of chapter 15. So Yahweh, he is symbolized by a smoking fire pot and a torch. And he passes through this pathway by himself. It's super weird, and we might just be like, what on earth is happening in this story? But what this indicates, as Terence Fretheim says, this is a unilateral promise, meaning that the carrying out of this covenant is based on Yahweh and not based on anyone else. This is a promise that he is making, and he is putting himself on the line, saying this is how serious I'm taking this promise. It's really powerful. And even though we fail repeatedly, this is an indication that God is one who keeps his promise. That God is one who is serious about his promises. Because it's based on his own character. It's not based on ours. And since this promise is based on his faithfulness, it means he's not going to fail at what he says he's going to do. And I think a story that really captures God's faithfulness in a powerful and beautiful way is the book of Hosea. Hosea is a top three Old Testament book for me. I love this book so much. It's powerful. If Jesus is God knowing what it's like to be man, Hosea is like man getting to understand a little bit about what it's like to be God. And it's so interesting. So the story starts with a strange encounter between Hosea, who's a prophet of God, and Yahweh. So Yahweh tells him, Hosea 1 verse 2, says, when the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, go marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her. For like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. Could you imagine your reaction if you're discipling someone or you're walking with somebody and they say, you know, I was really sitting with the Lord today. And I believe that God is telling me that I should go marry someone who I'm like 99% sure is going to cheat on me. We might be like, okay, well, we have, we have a couple questions, you know. Are you sure that that's the Lord? Like, that's, that's a little peculiar, right? So it's a very strange start. But in this situation, God is trying to help Hosea understand what it's like to be with somebody who is extremely unfaithful, much like Israel has been with God. 
And the story picks up in chapter three, whenever we see Hosea, Hosea's wife cheating on Hosea with another man. And in chapter three, verses one through three, says, the Lord said to me, go show your love to your wife again, though she is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Even if you don't want to, even if you really don't want to see her, go back to her. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods in the love of sacred raisin cakes. Sacred raisin cakes. I mean, I've had some good little Debbie snacks before, but I don't know if it's ever been good enough to make me be like, you know, raisin cakes, y'all, huh, I don't know. Like, that's, that's very peculiar. There's more to that. It's, that's just funny that that's in there to me. Uh, but what we're seeing here is a direct comparison. You are to love this unfaithful woman like I love this unfaithful people. So in verse 2 it says, So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and about a homer and a lefek of barley. Which if you don't have your lefek uh, calculator out to figure out what that means, it means that she was sold for half the price of a common slave. So the rest of the world did not really see much value in her. And then in verse 3 it says, And I told her, you are to live with me many days. You must not be a prostitute or be intimate with any man, and I will behave the same way toward you. So what you have here, this is so cool. You have Hosea going out of his way to pursue his lost wife and buy her back. Does that sound familiar at all? Does that ring any bells for you? Are you <laughs> connecting the dots maybe a little bit to Jesus? Because this is exactly what Jesus is doing with us. Jesus becomes human to pursue us, to seek and save the lost. He becomes like us in every way, and he pays the wages of our sin by his own death to buy us back to live in faithful relationship with the Father again. This is what Jesus is all about. And through Jesus, God is keeping his promise to Abraham that he made centuries before by blessing the world through Jesus. Whenever we have contributed to the curse of this world, whenever it was Adam, whenever it was Israel, us, the sins that we're doing, the sins that we're going to do, all of these are contributing and adding to the curse that's present. What Jesus is doing is taking all of that curse upon himself and turning it into blessing through his death and resurrection. No matter how many covenants we break, no matter how many times we are unfaithful to the Lord, no matter how many times we turn to the love of sacred raisin cakes or whatever it is, Jesus takes the consequence of our failed covenant upon himself because God's promise will not fail. And as 2 Timothy 2 says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. So knowing that God is one who is faithful in keeping covenants, what does this mean for us? So the first thing, and this is a hard one, <laughs> it's a lesson that I've had to learn very much so in the last couple of years, to trust in God's faithfulness even if we can't see it. Whew, me and Abby, this has been a, a hard thing for us to work through the last couple of years because we've been in such a time of transition. There's been so much going on where we've been questioning, like, God, where are you at work? What are you doing right now? And I'm going to share with you a couple stories, and just know that there's a lot behind these stories that I'm condensing considerably for the sake of time. But the first one is, after I was graduating from my master's program, we were looking for places that we could be in ministry together. And we talked with a lot of people, and we basically got the same answer. 
we really like you guys, but COVID has made it to where we can't really afford it or it, we don't know what we have right now. How many sentences in the last couple of years have been ruined by the words, but COVID, <laughs> right? There have been quite a lot, but this opportunity at Lipscomb Academy just kind of fell in our lap. This opportunity for both of us to be over chapel and help lead chapels there. And it's like, you know, it's not really what we expected, but maybe we can, maybe God's moving something for us to be there. And then one April morning, Abby gets a call from the superintendent of the school saying that they have a job for her, but not for me. Because they wanted somebody who was a little bit more uh, apt to lead worship. And I'm not, that's not really my gift set. So for the next three hours, we're like scrambling, trying to figure out what on earth we're going to do. How can we make this work? And we were praying, we were crying, just trying to figure it out. And then I get a call from that same superintendent. And in that first phone call with Abby, I forgot to mention this. He, he told her that Kyle, as soon as we have a Bible teacher available, he's the first person on our list. But we just don't know when one spot like that's going to open up. So three hours later, I get a call from him. And he asked, like, how you doing? And I said, well, not great. <laughs> and he said, well, maybe this will help your conversations. I don't know if this is God moving things around or what, but we just had a full-time Bible faculty resign and the job's yours if you want it. Just like three hours later, and it's just one of those moments where I fell to my knees and was crying and was like, God, thank you so much for providing this. It was, it was really like a Red Sea parting sort of moment for me. We saw no way forward, but God made a way. So that was one instance, but after we were at Lipscomb, we realized this really wasn't a long-term solution for us, so started trying to reach out, trying to find other job opportunities. And I heard about Fourth Avenue a few times from different people, and I was interested in it, but I just kept holding off. Then after talking with some mentors, I was like, you know what, I'm going to give it a go. I'm going to give it a go, just see what happens. And through my first few conversations with the shepherds and talking with the staff and being here and meeting y'all and feeling how inviting and loving y'all are, I mean, very quickly, I was like, Oof, this is the kind of church I can see myself at for a long, long time. But there was also the question of, will it be the right role? Will I be in the right situation? And I remember getting a call whenever I was offered the position. And it wasn't just... A, a position. It was like the position I've been praying about and wanting for so long since I wanted to come into ministry. It was as if I could have written the job description myself, and I was just like, are you kidding me, God? Like, this is crazy. You think I would have learned from that, right? No, wrong. Uh, so the next step in this was trying to find a house in Franklin, Tennessee, which, yeah, yeah, y'all know, y'all know. And I was like, I was coming off a high of faithfulness, like, oh, God's totally going to provide. So for the first month, and God blessed us with the greatest saint named Joe Barnhill, who is one part great realtor, but another part great hope dealer <laughs> in the despair of the Franklin housing market. Whenever Abby and I were very sad, uh, she encouraged us tremendously. But there was one point recently where we were looking at a house. I, I was doing pretty good about my optimism. Like I was optimistic most of the time. But there was one point, the interest rates started rising, and the house prices weren't dropping fast enough to sort of equalize it. And there was one house we were looking at that was like, if we don't get this one, I don't think we're going to get one for another year. Like, I just don't think it's possible. And we ended up not pulling the trigger on that one, and I was like, okay, 
well, uh, we're going to be stuck in our situation for another year. And I almost feel like God waits for me to say that or like think those sorts of ways before he steps in and it's just like, ha ha, <laughs> told you. Um, but there's one morning I got a notification on my phone and I looked at this house. And I'm like, wow, this might be perfect for what we're wanting. And it, meanwhile, I didn't know Abby was praying like, God, please just let something open up. And I turned to her. I'm like, hey, look at this. And it was just the most perfect house, and uh, we went and visited it, and long story short, we, we knew the owners of the house, which is how we were even able to get it in the first place, but we closed on it like two weeks ago. And I thought, I thought there was, yeah, that's, <laughs> I thought there was no way, no way in the world we were going to be able to find something, and definitely not in Franklin, right? Like, we would have had to have driven like 45 minutes to make something work, but we found something five minutes from here. And it's just like one of those things where God doesn't work in the ways that you expect, but it's always better than what you expect, right? <clears throat> so through each of these situations, I was doubting God. I was frustrated that he wasn't providing in the ways that I expected, but he just comes through. And that's how God works. But in these moments of doubt, it's really easy to ask, where are you, God? Why isn't this happening the way I want it to, or in the timeline that I'm wanting it to? And the thing is, we oftentimes kind of reduce God to being this sort of cosmic genie, where we think that he's only here to fulfill all of our heart's desires and all of our wishes, and he should do things based around my logic and around my reasoning. But God's blessing or his faithfulness, it doesn't mean that we're never going to experience suffering or hardship. Actually, Jesus kind of promises the opposite, doesn't he? In this world, you will have trouble. People will hate you because of me. That doesn't sound too fun. But don't hear that and think that God wants to give me a terrible life. Because he doesn't. God wants to give you a life of fulfillment and flourishing. It just may not be fulfillment and flourishing in the ways that we would picture that. If we think of flourishing as living the American dream, having the perfect house, having 2.5 kids, and living comfortably, if that's what we think flourishing is, I think Jesus' life demonstrates something very differently. And in my opinion, I would argue Jesus lived a more flourishing life than anybody else who's ever lived. And he was poor, he was homeless, and tortured to death. How in the world is that more flourishing than than the American dream or what I was describing. Because Jesus' life was so wrapped up in the intimacy of the Father. He was fully walking in step with his will. And that's more flourishing because God is more concerned about the person that we're becoming than he's concerned about blessing us with whatever else. Meaning, as John Mark Comer says, he cares more about your long-term character than your short-term happiness. Sometimes God saying no to our short-term happiness is a way of him to refine us. God is constantly seeking redemption and refinement in our lives to help ensure his good future of a new heaven and new earth. God always has the long view in mind, but oftentimes we can't see past our own pain and suffering. And what that does is it limits our perspective. It's kind of like if we're looking at the world through these, these nice little shutter shades. Uh, I don't know, I don't know if any of y'all remember whenever this was a popular thing. 
why this was a popular thing, I have no idea. It's one of the most counterintuitive things I've ever seen in my life. But glasses that are intentionally there to restrict part of your vision, we look at the world through that. But really, God looks at the world with that removed. He sees the, the grand perspective. But we have a very small and limited one. And I don't have the answer as to why God allows evil and suffering in our lives. I have some guesses. But maybe God allows it because he knows that a character refined by fire is stronger than one who's never touched it. That maybe through our scars, there is healing and freedom. And the person on the other side of the scars is stronger than the one before. But that doesn't change the fact that waiting or being in this is miserable. And it, takes, it makes it really easy for us to doubt God's work whenever we're in these moments. But try to remember the ways in which God has provided for you in the past. How he has been faithful to you in the past. God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. He will keep being faithful. And though we don't see it right now, we must trust in God's character and that he is working all things out for our good, even if we don't see it. Even if we're looking at the world through those lenses. And the second thing, we want to be hopeful in God's good future. And it's precisely because of God's faithfulness that we can be hopeful in God's good future. Because if he wasn't faithful, we wouldn't be able to, to hope in this. But I'm going to show Revelation 21 up here. And I want you to know all the I will language. It's language of promise. Right? So it says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. And he will dwell with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. That's our promise. And we can trust in that. We have hope in that because of God's faithfulness. And if he wasn't faithful, we wouldn't be able to hope in this. And this hope, it's not just like wishful thinking crossing our fingers. This is hope that is much deeper. As John Mark Comer argues, he says that it's the absolute expectation of coming good based on the character of God. If we truly believe that this is a part of God's character, of course he's going to fulfill his promise. He can't help but fulfill his promise because he is faithful. It's who he is. And then the final thing, we need to be people who are trustworthy and faithful ourselves. Are we? I think that's a question we need to ask. Is our yes, yes, and our no, no? As I mentioned before, we are becoming a less reliable people. There is less and less continual commitment, which is a problem because a lot of the best things in life, it comes from a, a result of continual commitment to one person or thing for a long period of time. That's whenever we see a lot of the best stuff blossom after that sort of faithful commitment. And it takes years and decades for that sometimes. And this is one of the reasons I think Hollywood gets love so wrong. They emphasize so much that romantic period at the beginning part of a relationship. But anybody can fall in love. It's easy to fall in love. It's hard to stay in love. A better picture of love, to me, is looking at that widow that is weeping over the casket of her husband of 70 years. That is love and faithfulness. That is hesed. <laughs> that is the love of God right there. We don't see enough of that 
So in an age of instant gratification where we can watch thousands of movies instantly and we can talk to anyone in the world by a, a press of a button or we can microwave food and have it ready in an instant, it's important to understand that we can't microwave the best stuff in life. We can't microwave godly character. We can't microwave good relationships. It takes time. It takes faithfulness and commitment and covenant for that. So this morning, let's be a people that renews our vows with the Lord. Let's remember how he has been faithful and reliable for us in our lives. And though God's covenant is based entirely on his character and not ours, praise God for that. We need to be people through the Holy Spirit who seek to be a faithful bride to our faithful God and trust in his good promises to come. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your faithfulness, your continual commitment to us, even though we don't deserve it at all. <laughs> even though we have been people who have been contributing to the curse, we've been people who have been breaking covenant. We are so grateful that you are a God of, of compassion and grace to look upon those failures with forgiveness. And we pray that you help us to trust in your faithfulness because it's really easy for us not to whenever we don't see you working. But even, even when we don't feel that you're working, we know you're working. And help us to see it. Help us to trust that. Help us to believe that you really are working all things out for our good, even in our own situations, even in our suffering, even in our pain. Give us the ability to say you are still faithful. And we praise you and we thank you so much for your good and consistent character in our lives. And we pray that you help us to be people who are refined into the image of Jesus and the likeness of Jesus. So that whenever we go out of this building, we can be people who are the aroma of heaven. Who can help people see your goodness whenever they look into our eyes. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.